Hello, and welcome to the Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, here, of course, with Victor Davis Hanson, the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And we turn today to immigration. As we're recording this, there is a debate going on in Washington over DACA. This is the initiative begun under President Obama that would provide legal protection for people who were brought here illegally as children. And Victor, you wrote about this recently for the LA Times. And one of the points you made there is that there is a tendency to romanticize this population. It's even embedded in the way that we refer to the group as dreamers, which of course that derives from the fact that the legislation that initially aimed to do what President Obama ended up doing by executive fiat was called the DREAM Act. But we tend to give a sort of aspirational gloss to this entire class of people. You think that's a little oversimplified. Explain that. Well, I think anytime you try to categorize 800,000 individual cases, you're going to run into problems. So when we say dreamers, what comes up first in our minds, somebody in high school that has dreams of going to college or is in college. And yet when we look at the statistics of the 800 to 900,000, 5% have obtained a bachelor's degree, about 40% dropped out of high school. The other 60 either graduate or are still in high school. The average wage is kind of a minimum wage for um, the American Southwest, not much over $15 an hour. And uh, often the supporters of DACA say, well, what would the military do without them? But of it's about one hundredth of – it's less than 0.03% have in the military. Only about eight to 900 people have joined the military. And the average age is somewhere between 24 and 26. So I don't know what dreamers means, but it's sort of a construct. It's sort of the bookend by saying it would be just as accurate or not accurate to say – because um, illegal aliens commit crimes at twice the rate, say, in the state of Arizona as citizens, or that they are about four times overrepresented in California penal institutions, given their numbers in the California population, that all illegal immigrants, immigrants are criminals, and they're not. So I, I'm just always wary of these these terms, and they're sort of therapeutic terms in this case, that we're supposed to think that we're, we're going to go – raid Stanford or Harvard and take out poor people for no fault of their own. We're always told they were they didn't do anything wrong. They were brought by their parents, true. But at the average age is 24, 25, 26. Some of these people have had six, seven years to address their illegal status, and they didn't do it. I mean, at 18, you're in theory an adult. Of course, such is the world that we live in that we can't have this broader conversation about immigration without making reference to a remark the president supposedly made in the Oval Office recently in which he stands accused of using scatological terminology to refer to some of the countries from which we're accepting immigrants. Let's put aside sort of the media hysteria for a moment and focus on the merits of that conversation, Victor. How relevant is country of origin when we're deciding who gets to come to the United States? Well, we're in a post-industrial so-called uh, informational knowledge-based economy, so – Muscular labor, which comes from poorly developed countries, is less important than it used to be. This is not nineteen, you know, eighteen forty, and we're looking for people from Ireland to go out and open up the prairie. So it becomes very important, especially when we know that about 
60% of households that come from Latin America and Mexico uh, rely on public assistance to some degree. And so what I think the president was trying to say was, let's have true diversity. You guys believe in diversity. Let's have diversity. But one out of every four immigrants comes from Mexico and one out of every two comes from Mexico or Latin America. Let's have people from Norway and rather than this blank, blank. And so this raises a lot of issues. First of all, empirically, was that wrong? No, it's not wrong. It's wise to look at countries and maybe on the basis of the UN Development Index or G, per capita GDP, if, if we do that, then it makes sense to bring people from Norway as much as you do from Haiti or more so. I mean, he, we, why did he say Norway? Not because uh, he's a racist and thinks that Norwegians are white because remember the media didn't report in the same phrase. He said Norway and Asia. So he was asking for more white people and non-white people in, in, in the term of Asia. And it wasn't because they were white or non-white. It was because it, in his mind, Norway and Asia are success stories that wasn't reported. It said, as you said, that was scattered. And then there was a second issue um, should there be confidence um, in the White House among staff and senators in private conversations? If there isn't, then you ha we could say that LBJ referred to his own fallacies jumbo in front of senators. He did that all the time. In fact, he exposed himself. We know that on three or four occasions. So his presidency would have been over if somebody said, I just came out of the office with LBJ and he undid his trousers and referred to himself as Jumbo. Well, can you imagine if Trump did that? So I guess what I'm saying is that presidential conferences should be confidential. Trump has every right to suggest that, that immigration be diverse, meritocratic, uh, legal, and measured. And he said things that he probably shouldn't have said because, A, uh, they 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 gave ammunition to his enemy and they deflected from his otherwise positive messages. B, he should never trust his political enemies in case Dick Durbin had no intention of honoring the confidence. And C, he's, he was wrong in one fundamental respect is that it gave the impression that everybody from Haiti is undesirable and everybody from Norway is desirable. There's a lot of people from Norway we wouldn't want in the United States, and there's some people from Haiti that we would want. But on the law of averages, the Norwegian, if they were to immigrate, I think only 500 do a year, they'd have a better chance of success. All that was lost in the media hysteria. There used to be a wing, at least, of the Democratic Party that bridled at illegal immigration, maybe even sort of low-skilled legal immigration because of the labor market implications. They saw the pressure that it would put on wages for low-skilled American workers. Now, to the, whatever extent that still exists within the Democratic Party today, it's certainly not reflected in the leadership. If anything, that position seems to be more ascendant in the Republican Party. So what's changed? Why is that no longer a top-tier concern for Democrats? Well, I think it changed around 2008 because remember Bill Clinton used the word illegal alien. He talked about building the wall. I think Chuck Schumer in 2009 was still using the word illegal alien. And I think even Barack Obama had mentioned that, that he wasn't a king. He wasn't an autocrat. He couldn't um, voluntarily or on his own initiative issue a executive order granting DACA amnesty. So what happened? I think what happened was uh, Obama won 
in 2008, and he thought that he had a calculus, especially after the Tea Party capture of the House. He thought he had a political calculus in appealing to people on the basis of their tribal affinities, and that would get out the vote of the base, so to speak. And even if you weren't Latino, you would think that the empathy he showed toward Latinos would be indicative of his tribal mindset about Asians and blacks. And indeed, he got 96% of the black vote, 72% of the Hispanic, 70% of the Asian vote. So he came up with an electoral calculus that he thought was going to be a winning calculus. So right around June 2012 is what I mark as the, the turning point where suddenly he said, I can issue executive orders and we're not going to use the word illegal alien. And these people are dreamers and we're not really going to enforce the border anymore. And he was reelected. And I think the message was that immigration became a key issue because although it helped Obama, it wasn't really necessarily the issue that got him elected, but it was one of the issues that helped him lose the House and Senate and Hillary Clinton presidency. So it wasn't a transferable plus uh, from Obama to Clinton. And now uh, I think about, depending on how you word the question, about 75% want the border closed with American people. As far as DACA goes, I would imagine if we ask most Americans, do you want to deport people who came here? Forget DACA, just anybody who's here illegal. Do you want to deport people who have committed a crime? Do you want to port, deport people who have uh, just arrived on the sin of amnesty? Do you want to deport people who have no work history, you want to deport people who are entirely dependent on social services, they'd say yes. Then they would say, would you like to give a green card, not citizenship, a green card to anybody who's been here five years, who's willing to pay a fine, never been arrested, uh, never been on public support? They would say, yeah, give them a green card. How you square that uh, circle, I, I don't know because I don't think – I think the right is willing to make a deal more than the left because the left sees that they flipped California, Nevada, and New Mexico due to illegal immigration in the last 30 years. And it's, they don't see the system as broken. Everybody says it's broken. They don't see that at all. They see the present system as wonderful. Let me follow up on that in terms of – you've just described the difficulty of squaring the circle politically. If we were to put the politics to the side for a moment, the anxiety amongst people – who hold the position that you just described there, that broadly they, they want to find a humane way to deal with the people who are here who are willing to pay the fines, haven't committed crimes, <clears throat> aren't on public assistance. The anxiety has always been how do you deal with those people in a humane way but fix the system going forward so you don't end up in exactly the same place a few decades later, as was you know widely understood to be the case with the Reagan amnesty. Yeah. On the merits, putting the politics to one side, how would you answer that question? Well, you do things that the Democrats will never agree to. You build the wall, at least where it's feasible to be built. You implement E-Verify that allows employers to be responsible uh, in the way that they hire people, i.e. citizens only, and they have a way to, to certify that. And then you stop chain migration. You make you can't just say somebody from Oaxaca can come because his brother came in a way a PhD from Nigeria cannot. And uh, 
you get rid of the visa lottery, which is not that big of an issue. And then in exchange for all of that, you say to all 11 or 12 million, what I just said, if they're crime-free, they've had some residency, they're working, they're willing to pay a fine, then they get a green card. And what they do after the green card is their business. But that's not going to happen because the present broken system, it empowers La Raza uh, tribunes. It gives the Democratic Party a demographic uh, advantage uh, in the Electoral College in the American Southwest. And based on the merits of their message, they're not always going to win elections unless they get new voters. It allows the Chamber of Commerce, Wall Street Journal Wing, and the Republican Party to get inexpensive labor. They don't really care about that wages have been stagnant for entry-level workers. And Mexico gets between... Central America, Latin America, and Mexico, they get an aggregate of about $50 million, billion, excuse me, in remittances. And so all of those entities say that the system is broken, ha, 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 but they don't see it as broken. The only people who see it's broken who, who are trying to put their child in a school where a quarter of the speakers are not English and there's no more advanced placement because there's remedial or a professor at a CSU campus where 40% of the incoming students have to be remediated or a prison guard who has suddenly one out of three people are here illegally or Kate Steinle's parents in San Francisco or somebody's trying to build, uh, fix the 99 freeway in California. There's no money because we're spending, um, you know, a third of our budget on social services. But they don't, they don't have a, a, until Trump, they really didn't have a rallying point. Then Trump came along and served a, demagogic fashion, but nevertheless, he, he saw that there was an opening that 16 brilliant, experienced Republican candidates just didn't think was there. In some of our past discussions on this topic, you've analogized the sanctuary cities movement in California now, actually sanctuary state, to um, the nullification efforts in the South in the run-up to the Civil War. Ultimately, of course, in that case, took the force of arms to bring the South to heal doesn't look like the trajectory of this debate is anything like that. But how much cause for concern should it be when you have states essentially deciding that they're just going to ignore federal law when it suits them? Well, there's a lot of things wrong with the sanctuary state, the new bill. And the, and the first, of course, is it doesn't work if every state did what California did. And we've talked about this before. But if Mississippi said no endangered species in our state, no EPA federal list or, you know, North Dakota said no federal gun registration waiting periods. California would be the first to be outraged. So it's not, it's not a system that would work under our federal constitution. Second, it's a slippery slope. So no sooner does California do this sanctuary cities than sanctuary states, then they get hit with the nullification or the the new tax code that says you can't write off your local taxes and property taxes and state taxes over 10,000 a year. And California realizes that suddenly the rich people that always makes fun of that about 160,000 of them pay 50% of the income tax. And they say to themselves, if they leave and they very I mean, they're going to take hits of fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year. Some of these people that make nine hundred thousand a year, then we can't let that happen. So we're going to nullify that federal law by 
creating a little quirky, you donate to a charity in the name of California. That's not, we know that if every state did that, it, the system would fall apart. We know that California has separate drug laws and that contravene federal law that Obama winked and nodded at. So once you start doing that, you'll see that all these other states will have their own agendas and just like during the Civil War and, and if the South gets away with it, there is no more union. If California gets away with it, there is no more union. So this administration, I think you're going to see, is really going to clamp. If a board of equalization officer in California gives a speech or writes a memo saying to a California taxpayer, we're going to find a way for you to deduct this from your federal taxes, they're going to charge him with tax fraud or conspiracy to defraud the IRS. And if Jeff Sessions has said he's willing to look at prosecuting city officials who refuse to comply with an ICE directive about a convicted felon in their custody. And I think that's going to be very interesting to see what happens because California officials said they wouldn't even, I think you'll see people arrested if it continues down this way. Final question that I'll put to you. There is a cliche in American life that you hear all the time. You especially hear it when we're debating immigration. This idea that diversity is our strength. We, in fact, we just heard it the day that we're recording this from uh, Lindsey Graham, a Republican senator from South Carolina. Diversity is our strength. I know from our previous conversations, your reading of history tells you that there are limits to the benefits of diversity. Explain what those are and how you get around them. Well, on one side of the equation, there's diversity in the sense that there's a common culture, same language, same law, same customs, same Western heritage of private property, secularism, constitutional government, and that we don't look alike, but we are alike as the content of our character is the same. The color of our skin is different. And then on the other extreme, there's Balkan, Rwanda, Iraq diversity by identification through your superficial appearance or your skin color or your religious perspective or whatever it is. But there's no evidence in history that that ever leads to a stable society. It always leads to fragmentation. So once you have the German Sudetenland inside the Czechoslovakia after the Versailles, that's not going to work because the Germans are never going to you know, integrate, assimilate, intermarry with the Czechs, at least not enough to, to stop that identity. So anytime you have groups within a state whose primary loyalty is to the tribe, and that's what identity politics demands of us, and we've talked about this before, if your name is Cuomo now or Giuliani, we don't know how you're going to vote just because it's Italian. If your name is Lopez or Martinez, you're likely going to vote Democratic. But once that is enshrined, then the system unfolds. So what we want to do is we want to make your last name or your first name or the way you appear to other people irrelevant. And what's relevant is your common bond as an American to the Constitution. And the Democrats have discovered that if they follow that paradigm or trajectory, then they have to appeal to people on their message. And their message is sort of big state, high taxes, controlled economy, uh, social welfare, European-style EU socialism, and they can't get 51% of the people to go for that. So they bring up, you know, they want an open border, and it's been very effective. 46 million people are in the United States right now that weren't born in, in America, and one out of every four Californians was not born in the United States. The vast majority of all those people are very liberal.
All right. Thanks as ever for listening to the Classicist Podcast. If you haven't already, remember to pick up Victor's new book, The Second World Wars, How the First Global Conflict Was Fought and Won. And if you enjoy the Classicist, please rate the show on iTunes. We'll be back with another episode soon. For Victor Davis Hanson, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.